0: Why is Daniel in our Bibles? Daniel helps us see in 2023 that every kingdom of this world will pass away. That's the reality. God uses Daniel, he's using this ancient book to loosen our grip on our worldly kingdoms and to do something with that, actually to tighten our grip around his kingdom. It's a, Daniel is a case study on the faithfulness of God to a people who have lost everything. They've lost their place of worship. They've lost their communities, their families have been scattered, their leaders killed, warriors taken, their land overrun and seized. Every tradition that the that Israel, that Judah held dear was destroyed, it was stripped, it was desecrated. And so Daniel helps us hold on to the truth that wherever and whenever hardship comes, God does not lose even one of his people. He will not lose you. Last week, I said that I want our time in Daniel to help us detach from our political idolatry and to think more and more Christianly, to think as a citizen of God's kingdom before we're thinking of ourselves as citizens of human kingdoms. And... 2024, it's sure to be an intense political season. And I fear that if we wait until then, if we wait until 2024 to start thinking about how to live as disciples of Jesus in a cutthroat and a a ruthless political environment, that we will have missed the boat. And the church must regain her prophetic Edge, her willingness to, uh, her courage and her willingness to speak the truth of the gospel to any and to every aspect of our culture. And so, our my hope for us is this: may we long to be a people of holy resistance, resisting the world's ways, and may we be a people who are filled with the courageous wisdom of the Holy Spirit. People who have decided to stay true to Jesus no matter the cost, even if it costs us our lives, which means something. It means that we resolve, we decide, we choose to obey Jesus's commands regardless of if it hurts or how it hurts. It means we don't cast off the fruit of the Holy Spirit and how we tell the truth and how we engage our enemies. And it means, actually, that we seek to do good to our enemies and to model the love that Jesus himself showed his enemies, of which you and I once were. While we were lost in our sin, Jesus died, and he rose for us. And so both the cultural left and the cultural right are offering a playbook to you and I for how we deal with our enemies. And this is the political, the partisan, this is the playbook. This is how you deal with your enemies. You shout them down, you cut them off, you demonize them, you ostracize them, you, uh, you dehumanize them. And so you view them as an, uh, not just an enemy, but you view them as a monster, subhuman, less than human, people to be eradicated. Our political, our cultural, our, even our international enemies, they are not monsters to destroy, but they are people who Jesus is calling his church to radically love. And so attack and slander, and mockery, and accusation, and deception, and underhanded ways are not the playbook of the kingdom of God. By all means, we attack, and we demolish ideas. Yes, and amen. But we refuse to attack and to demolish the person. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers of darkness. It's against the... the the, the worldly realm that wars against the kingdom of God. It's against Satan. It's against demons. So we show up to the polls. We, sh- we show up to defend life. We show up and winsomely defend God's design for gender and sexuality, and we seek to see the whole person. We make room for the immigrant. We create processes for them to come into our country as citizens. We uphold the just laws of our land. We uphold systems and we create support for the under-resourced. We care for our environment. We do justice. We love kindness and we walk humbly with our God like the prophet Micah said. We, like the prophet Jeremiah, like God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, we seek the welfare of our cities and we pray to the Lord on their behalf because in their welfare, we will find our welfare. And that's where God had Jeremiah and the people of Israel during exile. God was speaking to and through Jeremiah and to the people of Judah and the people of Israel telling Jeremiah to tell the people to seek the welfare of their cities. They were in Babylon. They were in exile. This is an enemy nation. But he said, seek the welfare of your cities and pray on their behalf, because in their welfare, you will find your welfare. And so here is Jesus' most direct teaching on loving those who want to destroy us. In Luke 6, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Love your enemies, do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." So in this Old Testament book written in the mid-6th century BC, Daniel finds himself not only living in the land of his enemies, but he's also enlisted by God to this high office of being an advisor of the enemy king. And Daniel finds himself in a position where he can love and he can actually serve this enemy king. And that's what he does. And it's wild to me. He is between a rock and a hard place. And God is the one who placed Daniel there. And so what we'll see in Daniel in chapter two is we'll see how he loves his enemy very well. Now, Today's sermon is not about how to be like Daniel. Anytime that we come to nar- narratives in the Bible, there's this strong temptation in us to want to be like the Daniels, to, be, to want to be like the Davids, to want to be like the Abrahams and the, the Moseses, I, and I get that. That's a strong temptation. But instead, think of it like this. We're actually being discipled in Christ-likeness through the example of Daniel, The goal of being a Christian is to become more and more like Jesus Christ, not more and more like Daniel. So as we read this ancient book about a man of God and the way that he operated in a beastly and enemy kingdom, we don't reject Daniel, but actually we get to look through Daniel in order to see the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. Daniel is a shadow of the Messiah to come. God has some things to teach us about how to live in Babylon from this ancient book. Here's the big idea today. God is ever-present between the rocks and the hard places of life, and when the bottom falls out, we can fall to our knees in dependence. God is ever-present between the rocks and the hard places of our lives, and when the bottom falls out for us, we can fall to our knees in dependence. Chapter 1 of Daniel sets up the events of chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 17 says that God has given Daniel something very special. He has given him understanding in all visions and dreams. So this story is unfolding to show God's faithful presence to his servants. We learn that Nebuchadnezzar has this nightmare that sends him for a loop. He commands. He's freaked out. He commands his magicians and his enchanters, these counselors and people of the magic arts and discernment and all that, he commands them to show him both the content of his dream and the interpretation. This is what they do. This is what they're supposed to be about. They're supposed to do some crazy stuff that defies understanding as magicians in the land, and they can't. They cannot tell him what his dream was, and they certainly, because of that, can't tell him what it meant And so Nebuchadnezzar is enraged about this and he issues this decree to put all the wise men, to put all the enchanters, all the magicians of Babylon, including Daniel and his friends to death. And so we see in chapter two, how Daniel attempts to stop these killings by offering to reveal and interpret the king's dream before he actually knows either one. It's wild so much faith here. You could say in some ways it's blind faith, but Daniel knew that God had given him wisdom to interpret dreams and visions. And so Daniel finds a way to ask for a hearing with the king, and he does it through the king's captain. And then he immediately goes, from that point, he goes home to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and he, he asks his friends to pray, and later that evening we read in, in verse 19 that this mystery, the mystery, was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So Daniel discovers that his God, Yahweh, exists between the rocks and the hard places of life. And he also recognizes his own need for God-seeking spiritual community too. He draws his three friends into this urgent prayer meeting. So several things come into focus for us in chapter 2. First, we see the power of God in contrast with the silence of the gods of Babylon. And second, when the bottom falls out, disciples of Yahweh fall to their knees. Notice the power of God in contrast with the silence of the gods of Babylon. We read in verse 11, the, the thing that the king asks, these are the magicians and enchanters saying this to the king, the, the thing that you're asking is difficult and no one can show it to you, to the king, except the gods. Notice that that is plural there, the Babylonian gods, and their dwelling is not with flesh. What's that all about? This phrase uh, is setting up a contrast with Judah's God, with Israel's God, Yahweh, And so, as this biblical storyline develops over 500 years with the birth of Christ, we will see that the exact way that God sets up his everlasting kingdom is by dwelling with flesh. John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, and the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." So while these Babylonian gods are mute, while they're powerless, we see that Daniel's God speaks and saves those who call out and trust him. God comes through for Daniel and we learn that it is the God of heaven, singular, who revealed both the content and the meaning of the dream to Daniel. And so we realize that God is communicating, communing with flesh we're clued in on the fact that rather than God and his people being the losers in Babylon, there's way more happening behind the scenes and we're signaled to be on the lookout for it. Notice how when the bottom falls out, the disciples fall to their knees and they do it together. When the bottom falls out, the disciples fall to their knees together. Believers in God, Christians or in Daniel's day, not insulated in any, in any way from crisis. Like one of the marks of the Christian experience oftentimes is suffering. But this inclination as Daniel is about to potentially lose his life here, the inclination in him to pray reveals that Daniel had an awareness of God's presence right there in the middle of their confusing and painful circumstances in Babylon. Babylon. And so a key takeaway in chapter two is the way that Daniel's heart and the way that his mind were primed for petition, asking God for help, and for thanksgiving too. They're primed for prayer, and Daniel calls his friends into it all with him. Now, often, if you're anything like me, in our human experience, our human inclination, when the bottom falls out for us, is to overcome our difficulties with the strength of our own resources. So we might offer a little prayer, but my own experience is that often my needs, they're brought before men, they're brought before the strength of my own resources or my my networks before they're ever brought to God. My needs, I can figure it out. And so oftentimes I just do that. But Daniel is modeling something for us here the text means to show us two things one daniel buys some time so there's wisdom at play here and two he spends the first fruits of his time in prayer rather than in self-sufficiency so he's not trying to scramble he's not panicking he's not escaping he's not defending he's not strategizing he's actually going to his friends and say guys we need to pray we're in between a rock and a hard place here the 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 right, the best right next thing for us to do is, is to pray. Prayer and petition is anti-self-sufficiency. Have you ever thought about it like that? Help seeking prayer is an immediate confession that you and I don't have the resources that we most need and that God is the keeper of every resource imaginable. And he dwells with flesh. Us. He became one of us to make himself that accessible to us. I'm reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples when they're doubting their ability to follow in his footsteps and to live as legitimate citizens of the kingdom of God. And Jesus' answer to them, how do, we, how do we inherit eternal life? How do we enter the kingdom of God? He says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. A reflexive dependence on prayer often feels impossible. And in our own strength, it just is going to be impossible. We're not going to reflex into prayer. However, the ability of God to intervene and to produce this kind of praying life in us is more than possible. Do you feel like a failure at prayer? Anybody here? I feel that way Often. Martin Lloyd Jones says that everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Thomas Shepard, he said, there are times in my life when I would rather die than pray. You feel that? There are times when I would rather do anything than pray. But the reality is, is that our praying life starts and ends with our neediness. If you and I are unwilling to be needy before God, our praying life is incompetent at best. Our self-sufficiency is the enemy of our praying. Here is a simple suggestion, whether your prayer life is a withered branch or a fruitful tree, ask God to help you pray. Lord, I don't like this. Everything in me resists this. I don't want to do it. I find it difficult. My mind runs in circles. I'm distracted like crazy. I don't, uh, don't need jerk into prayer. So, will you help me? I have need. I can't do it on my own. Lord, will you help me pray? What happens when we confess this kind of a need early? Is that the kind of prayer that God wants to answer? Lord, help me come to you in need. Lord, help me come to you in thanksgiving. Of course, it's the kind of prayer that he wants to answer. And I want to say also for those of us who are really hard on ourselves spiritually, I I, want to urge you please to quit whipping yourself emotionally for not praying and to make it your goal to go to God and ask him to teach you to pray. Use the energy that you would otherwise spend beating yourself up and use it to get yourself to him in need. All you have to do with empty hands is say, Lord, help. Help me pray, and then keep doing that, and keep asking Him to help you pray until you start praying. Whether it's a day or a week or a month or a year or two. Do you know how we got the Lord's Prayer in our Bibles? You know how it came to us. Listen to this, Luke eleven. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, "Lord, teach us to pray." As John taught his disciples. And so Jesus says, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You need to know, you will probably never drift toward prayer in the same way that you don't drift toward good eating or exercise or other worthwhile disciplines, right? Our hearts lean in a totally different direction just by nature. But recognition of this and through small steps of need in the direction of God, we can grow as a praying people who depend on God and give him thanks in all situations. One one thing also that we see here from Daniel as we see him give thanks quickly as God reveals this king's dream to him. Thanksgiving to God also comes with a lot of difficulty for us. But it's through a lifestyle of intention, it's through a lifestyle of effort, Holy Spirit-given wisdom and dependence on God's resources that we learn to give Him the first fruits of our gratitude reflexively. It's not in the actual words of the text, but we we begin to see that what comes out of Daniel in this moment of trial in chapter 2 is something that has been developing in him quietly behind the scenes. And what comes spilling out of Daniel is that it is God who embodies wisdom. It's God who embodies might. It's God who is in control of the ages and seasons. It's God who grants wisdom and knowledge to humans. It's God who makes mysteries known. It's God who lives in the light, and it's God who lives in faithful ways with his people. It's who he is. When we develop a thankful prayer life in the quiet, we become ready to give God credit in public. When we develop a thankful prayer life in the quiet, we become ready. It emboldens us to give God credit in the public. Daniel is granted a hearing by this king and by Nebuchadnezzar, and, he, and, and so Daniel... Uh, He comes before Nebuchadnezzar and he reveals the dream and its meaning. And he is really quick. Notice this. He's really quick to give God credit in the presence of the king. He says, "There, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And this God has made it known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the last days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And then he goes on to tell him. He goes so far as to tell the king that his God, that Daniel's God, the God of heaven, is personally speaking to the king. It's astounding. Nebuchadnezzar has done so much damage to God's people. He has done damage to God's reputation as he has come in and conquered God's people. And so the surrounding nations are thinking that God looks like a loser, right? Nebuchadnezzar has done damage to God's temple. He's destroyed it. He's broken God's law repeatedly. And here in this moment, God answers this king's request, he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. So, this is an opportunity for this Babylonian king to humble himself, which he alludes to at the end of this chapter. But Sinclair Ferguson, I think, rightly notes that the king was awed. He was in awe, but he wasn't converted. When we know God as sovereign and powerful, It empowers the right mix of bold confrontation and relational kindness. When we know God as sovereign, as having all authority, fully competent and capable to do anything he wants, when we know him like that, it empowers a healthy, a right mix of bold confrontation and relational kindness. In the moment, as Daniel reveals the king's dream and its interpretation, he also declares that it's God who's made the king powerful in the first place. Bold confrontation and relational kindness can really have an incredible effect on your enemies. It can endear you to your enemies. My inclination, it's to be harsh. It's to get control. It's to get on top. It's to, right, it's, it, it, it's to battle but relational kindness is it's winsome it 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 stands on the truth and seeks the tangible good of other people niceness is polite it's non-confrontational and kindness and niceness are different. Listen to the way that Barry Corey, president of Biola, talks about the difference between niceness and kindness. Here's what he writes. He says, this is a pretty long quote, but it's good. He says, by kindness, I'm not talking about when you buy a stranger coffee or when you bring in your neighbor's trash cans or when you tell someone they have food in their teeth. These are Nice random acts, but kindness isn't a random act. Kindness is a radical life. Kindness isn't limited to grandmothers or Boy Scouts. Never mistake kindness for niceness. He writes kindness is all over the Bible, it's plentiful in both testaments, and it's a radical way of living biblically. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, actually, on Paul's short list in Galatians 5. Kindness is an imperative. It's the natural outcome of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We exhale kindness after we inhale what's been breathed into us by the Spirit. Kindness radiates when we're earnest about living the way of Christ, living the way of the Holy Spirit. Kindness displays the wonder of Christ's love through us. He goes on to say that niceness may be pleasant, but but niceness lacks conviction. Uh, Niceness has no soul. Niceness trims its sails to prevailing cultural winds and it it wanders aimlessly, standing for nothing and thereby falling for everything. Kindness, it's certainly not aggression, but it's also not niceness. Niceness, it's bland. Niceness is keeping an employee in the job knowing he's no longer the right fit, therefore failing him and the company because you don't have the courage to do the right thing kindness calls you to tell him he's not the person for the position and then to dignify him in the transition kindness is a dimension of God's common grace through us it's a civility grounded in gentleness and respect and at the same time kindness it's neither milk toast it's not soggy it's not weak it's not bland it's fierce it's passionate The God-authored spirit of kindness in us has the power to upend the enemy and season the world around us for the good. Kindness, as Jesus lived it, presents the highest hope for a renewal of Christian civility, a renewal needed now more than ever. End quote. Daniel doesn't seem hesitant to confront at all, but when he confronts, he's kind in his posture. He's bold, but he's kind. At first we, we notice uh, when we began, we notice the power of God in contrast with the silence of the gods of Babylon. But now we also see another contrast, which is the power of the human king in light of the power of God who is king. And so Daniel says in verses 37 and 38, you, O king, he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, He's given you the power, the might, the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. He's making you rule over them all in this dream that you have had, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the head of gold. So as Daniel interprets the king's strange nightmare, he's both confronting the king And he's also foreshadowing the judgment of God. That's actually the way that he confronts the king here. God has been exceedingly gracious to Nebuchadnezzar, yet in return, this king is blind. He's proud. He's definitely not loyal to God Most High. And so in the dream, God foreshadowed the destruction of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. all going to get blown away. Not just his kingdom, but the coming kingdoms of the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, all of it's going to get blown away like dust in the wind. And so Nebuchadnezzar's kind of like panicky rage, it gives us an indication, it gives us a clue that he knew that something big was up, that this dream was more than just like um, a figment of his imagination or something, you know, that like resulted from uh, a little bit of stress earlier in his day, that actually he, they, they tended to view dreams as indicators, as prophetic words for their kingdoms and for their own lives. And so as Daniel, um, as Daniel reveals this dream to the king, he speaks of four different kingdoms that progressively descend from head to toe and from valuable metal to less valuable mineral. Some theologians, they think that this, uh, this, this uh, degradation from head to toe and from valuable to invaluable or unvaluable, they think that it signals a moral descent and a moral decay as the kingdoms come and go right before God's kingdom comes in power with the birth of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to talk more about these kingdoms in chapters seven and eight, but but Babylon is actually the only king, the only kingdom that's named in in this dream and in this interpretation. They're the only ones whose identity is revealed. And Babylon is this head of gold. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. A majority of Jewish and Christian scholars and theologians believe that the silver chest and the silver, you know, the arms are the Medo-Persian empire, which would unite just a few years after Nebuchadnezzar, and they would conquer Babylon. Babylon only existed in, in power as kind of the preeminent world kingdom for 66 years. And then the Medes and the Persians united, and they defeated them. And then after the Medo-Persians come the Greeks, which is the bronze, middle, and thighs. And then after them come the Romans, who are the legs and feet of iron and clay. And so this, the ultimate meaning of the dream reveals that while Nebuchadnezzar and future kings may have their day, it's God who will have the final say. They're going to have their day. They're going to look like the big man on campus. It's going to confuse us. It might outlast us in our earthly lives, but God will have the final say. And so in this dream, God's kingdom is represented by the stone that comes and it's not cut. He's really careful to say this. It is not cut. It's not derived from human handiwork. And this stone is going to come in and it's going to crash into the statue and it's going to bring this image down of all of these violent, beastly kingdoms. And in in their place, it's going to establish a kingdom that will spread and saturate throughout the whole earth. So we read in verses 44 and 45, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. I find it peculiar that Nebuchadnezzar seems positive about the whole thing and that he pays homage here in this moment. He falls down. But subtly in the text, the king is paying homage to Daniel, not necessarily to God. Again, repeating what Sinclair Ferguson notes about this passage, the king was in awe, but he wasn't converted. What the king said about God, it was true, though it wasn't impacting him at the level of repentance and real faith. And so that's a question for us to ask ourselves also. It's one thing for us to believe that God is God, and it's another thing for that belief to humble us down to the point of repentance, changing our minds, which will lead to a change of life and transformation. humble us to this point of repentance and also real faith. God values our faith. Uh, The the work of Jesus is to uh, redeem us into a people who return to trusting God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because one must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, who seek him from a true heart, a true desire. Dozens and dozens of times in Scripture, God is described as our rock. He's described as our firm foundation. He's described as a stone, stone of offense. In the New Testament, the apostles named Jesus the cornerstone of the church the king of the kingdom that has no end. So what does Jesus have to do with Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Jesus would come and live and die and rise 500 years after all of this. But Jesus didn't start to exist at his birth. Jesus has eternally been the second member of the Trinity, the son of the father, He took on flesh at his incarnation when he was born of the Virgin Mary, but that was not the beginning of his existence. And so, through Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God showed Daniel and us the triumph of our rock, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of his church, our rock and our redeemer. He showed Daniel the triumph of Jesus here on earth. Jesus at his birth and through his death, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his promised return, he has inaugurated a new kingdom of which those of us who believe in him and entrust ourselves to him become part of. We're citizens of a completely different kingdom. Kingdoms of this earth will come and go, but God's kingdom has no end. His kingdom has come and Over the last 2,000 years, it has continued to spread the globe over. Peoples, nations, languages wrapped up as citizens in the kingdom of God, His church. Do you belong to Him? Do you belong to the King of this kingdom? Do you belong to the kingdom as a citizen? Do you belong to His church? Jesus, through his spirit, who testifies with our spirits, you know, internally, it's that deep sense within you. He's calling us through his spirit to confess our sin, to confess the ways that we turn away from him, to rejoice in the salvation that he has bought for us and brought to us to rejoice in the salvation that he's continuing to work out in us and to entrust ourselves entirely to him. And this is our work for the rest of our lives again and again and again and again and again. Repentance of sin and admission of need and rejoicing in Jesus. Father, we ask you to make this text in Daniel effective for our transformation today. Help us trust Jesus with our heart, mind, soul, and our strength. Help us to love our neighbors, even our enemies, as we love ourselves. We trust you to do this transforming work in us. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen.